this episode of Skeptico, a show about paradigm change. And how when you get it, it isn't always what you think. I have an interview coming up with the fantastic Dean Radin, who I can assure you, 100 years from now, students will be studying his work and in particular his experiments because Dr. Dean Radin experimentally has destroyed, crushed, falsified, to put it in scientific terms, the long-standing dominant soulless paradigm that we are biological robots in a meaningless universe. And if you think I'm laying it on a little too hard there, give a listen to none other than Joe Rogan, who we can all agree, love him or hate him, is one of the most influential media sources in the world today. Higher than anyone you'll see on CNN, Fox, and MSNBC. I mean, from a number standpoint, many, many more viewers. Here's Joe yakking it up with our old frenemy, Michael Shermer. Um, but if you think about it from a simple perspective, the entire universe is in your brain, and when you cease to exist, the universe ceases to exist. It's just sort of true by definition. Now, he goes a little bit further and says, you know, that consciousness is everything and that we bring into existence material stuff by thinking about or observing it or whatever. And here's some quantum physics experiments that are really spooky. It's like, okay, time out. You know, quantum physics is weird and spooky. Consciousness is weird and spooky. That doesn't mean they're connected. So you see it now, right? You see that Shermer's just wrong. Or put it another way, his claims have been falsified experimentally by none other than the work of today's guest, Dr. Dean Radin. The spooky, weird things with quantum physics are related to consciousness, and we can show it experimentally. Here's a clip from the interview coming up with Dean. Well, so we're trying to connect it to quantum mechanics, and so we've done that in two ways. Uh, the first way is using a double-slit optical system to see if you can gain which path information, which is uh, the, the, which of the two slits a photon goes through. And so we've, we've now done about two dozen such experiments, and uh, some of them work, and some of them don't work. But if you do a meta-analysis across the board, it looks like there's pretty good evidence that something is going on, that the, the consciousness is involved in some way in the quantum process. I also want to add in one other quantum oriented experiment that we more recently published, which involves the use of entangled photons as the target of a mind-matter interaction, because we wanted to look at non-local mind interacting with non-local matter, and did it do anything? Part of the experiment was looking at, could you increase the strength of entanglement and then intentionally decrease the strength of entanglement? The short answer is, yeah, we were able to modulate it. But like I said at the top of the show, paradigm change never goes exactly the way you think. Take Dean's latest plan, his biotech venture that seeks to jab people in the arm in order to change their DNA. Of course, to fix their brain, which I thought we were past the brain consciousness thing. But anyways, to fix their brain so they're not depressed, so they don't have Alzheimer's. And maybe they're a little bit more psychic than they were before. And maybe they're even a little bit more connected consciously, more like a hive mind kind of thing. So I wrote a story which is designed to be an antidote to the way that psychic phenomena are usually portrayed in entertainment. So uh, think about the invasion of the body snatchers and the Borg in Star Trek and virtually every other example where you have a hive mind which is presented as the most horrific thing that you can possibly do. And we're saying in the story, no, it is not only not horrific, it is the best possible thing that we can do 
to because it, it pulls together something which is already interconnected, but we be, we sort of behave in an illusory way that we're separate and we're not really not connected. It is that disconnection that leads to the kind of madness that we're currently seeing in Ukraine, right? You have, you have people ad, literally shooting at each other and not appreciating the fact that at a deeper level, everything it really is interconnected, including us. So this is part of the, of the plot line in the story where there's a tension then between people who, who in this case, take a genetic enhancement and become a, a, a group mind, essentially. Everyone outside the group mind thinks that this is scary. We need to stop that. It's bad. From inside, this is the best thing that ever happened. This is like the difference between homo sapiens and homo superior. If, we, if we're going to survive, we need to advance as a species. And so the story is basically making the case that Homo sapiens is dying. And we have to, we either die or we evolve. Well, the evolution is going towards a new kind of human. And if it needs a little genetic push to get there, so be it. So the question about whether or not this biotech is going to happen is really not a question at all. Of course it's going to happen. Maybe the best we can do is hope that we have the right scientist with his hand at the switch. And in that way, maybe we should be glad that Dean Radin is doing this work. But I can't help but feel we might want to study this one a little bit deeper. And fortunately, I can tell you I've done the research. Here it is. 112. It works. On just the one primate. One is all we need. Full cognitive recovery. We're ready. Are you sure you're not rushing this? The data is clear. We're ready, Stephen. All I need is your approval for human trial. Yep, that's Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And in this case, the scientist with the hand on a switch is James Franco. Think about that one for a minute. By the way, here's how that thing turns out. Donnie, you get it ready? She's got stage fright. Is that what it is? <laughs> We're ready to move on to the next phase. Uh, human trials. No, 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 no. There been absolutely no side effects associated with 112, with one exception. Dean Radin is an awesome scientist. We stand on the shoulders of giants like this. I'm very grateful that he came on. I'm very grateful that he was so open about answering all these questions. Who knows where any of this stuff is going to go? And who knows what our role is in directing it? Stick around, I have a monumental interview with Dr. Dean Radin, coming up next on Skeptico. Welcome to Skeptica, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Scaris, and today, boy, oh boy, what a treat, what a treat for me, and hopefully I can do a good job and make it a treat for you as well. We have Dr. Dean Radin back on Skeptico. I think almost everyone who's listening to this show, who regularly listens to it, knows who Dean Radin is. But in case you don't, we are talking about one of the world's most respected and most famous parapsychologists, as in all time, most famous, all time, most respected, uh, truly a groundbreaking career, paradigm shattering science. So, it really has to be put in perspective. His day job is as chief scientist at IONS Institute of Noetic Sciences. 
He has a very interesting biotech thing going on, cognigenics. We're going to certainly want to talk about that. And we're going to want to talk about what they got. I thought we would talk about. I was listening to an interview you recently did, Dean. And at the end, the guy goes, hey, he kind of is apologizing. He goes, I'm sorry you know, for asking you kind of the same questions that everyone asks you. And you were like, you know, that's okay. I take it as kind of a challenge, kind of as a performance challenge to see how I can bring this information, all this science that I've accumulated and bring it out in a new way or bring it out in a different way or shape it towards the audience I think I'm talking to. And I thought, you know, it's such a good, it was such an interesting response because certainly part of your career, early part of your life was about performance and was about, you know, how do I take what I'm doing and bring it forth? Did I get that right in terms of what you told that guy? Well, it it is true that uh, I, I've done now 650 or some number like that of interviews, and it takes a fair amount of time. Uh, so I do it for two reasons. One is to be able to speak in a way that virtually anybody can understand what I'm talking about. So that it takes some effort to do that because most of the time my mind is inside uh, some analysis somewhere and it's very technical stuff. Uh, so it's very important when you're speaking not only to the general public, but to other scientists that they can understand what you're talking about. And that means you can't use jargon. You, you can't go into heavy technical stuff because, you know, we, we can't know everything. So I, I enjoy that challenge. That's the same challenge that I have in writing books. I want the general public and everybody else to be able to read it and get something out of it. Uh, and the other thing is it, it keeps me sharp in terms of being able to talk about this. So sometimes even on national radio, you hear somebody whose every other word is um and ah uh, and you know and all that. And I try not to do that and try to, to make it sound like I actually know what I'm talking about. And the moment I do start to use the ums and the ahs, it's a signal to me that I actually don't know what I'm talking about. Great. I wish I could... Uh hold to that standard, but I, I don't always do it. So I thought, here's what I thought we might do as a little bit of a performance challenge for you. Most folks know you through these enormously successful books that you've had, uh, The Conscious Universe, 1997, HarperCollins, Entangled Mind, 2006, Simon & Schuster, Supernormal, 2013, Random House, Real Magic, 2018, Random House. Amazing because they're science books by major publishers. That's amazing enough. They're in a field that more or less didn't exist before you started writing these books. Double amazing. And at the same time, even though these books are how a lot of people come across your work, you are essentially, what do you call it? An experimentalist. You are a scientist who observes the world and then can't resist the urge to say, well, how can I take that and bring it into my lab and see if I can make it work in here? So I thought your challenge would be to give us kind of a highlight reel of those four books and some of the most significant experiments that are somehow connected to those books. How's that for a highlight reel performance challenge? Yeah, I could do that. But I first want to correct you that the, the field that I work in has been around since 1882 in a systematic way. 
And there, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. Like anybody working in science, the you're always standing on history, and and I am too. And there are plenty of books for my colleagues who are, are just as good as mine. I, I've taken a slightly different tact usually in writing it at a level which I hope most people can understand. And sometimes other books tend to be more technical or denser. Uh, so I'm definitely not the first person to be talking about this stuff. So the, the four books, uh, the first one, the, the Conscious Universe, I actually wrote uh, when I was at Princeton University many years ago. And I wrote like 80% of it and no book publishers were interested in it. Uh, probably because I wasn't an author at that point and nobody knew who I was and they didn't, they didn't know what I was writing about. Uh, so some years go by and then I'm at the University of Nevada and uh, a piece of luck falls out of the sky and it was featured in an article in the New York Times magazine. And the next day I got multiple calls from a book publisher saying, oh, would you ever consider writing a book? And I said, oh, well, I have something actually. So that was, that's how I got The Conscious Universe published. And the point of that book was that uh, up until that time, a very common refrain that you'd hear from skeptics is, there's not a shred of evidence that this stuff is real. And even for experiments that are done, they're flawed or they're fraud, or more importantly, they're not replicated, which is the currency of truth in science. Well, I knew that wasn't true. So I felt I, I needed to write a book, which I had could not find in the shelves. That's how all of my books are actually. I, I don't want to write something that's just going to repeat what somebody else says. So that first book, The Conscious Universe, was written as a way of introducing people and scientists that uh, what is the history? What are the replications? How do we know that it's replicated? So it was introducing meta-analysis and you know, not a very technical way, but as, uh, appropriately for the time that I wrote it, the, the methods, and presented one example after another of cases where we know that effects were repeated, uh, that they are replicated, and overall highly statistically significant, even though the magnitude of the results in each case is usually pretty small. So that, that was basically the point of that whole book. So, Dean, let me ask you this. At that time, what would you say experimentally in your lab was driving you forward, was really catching your interest the most at that time when that book comes out? Uh, back then, it would probably, the most interesting thing to me would have been the presentiment experiments, the un unconscious physiological response to future events. Because it was relatively new. I was getting really good results, and I already had some colleagues who were able to successfully replicate those effects. So, so that was new. And I always thought what was interesting about that work, and you just related, uh, you just referenced it, and that is it pulled you deeper, deeper into kind of being on the forefront of advancing, I don't want to say advancing the scientific method, because that's not true. But but you were held to such a standard in terms of the procedures you're doing, controls you're doing. And in particular, when you get to the presentiment stuff, it was like, how do you do a good baseline? And then how do you measure these small changes against that good baseline? And then how do you do meta analysis? And then how do you work on even like the file drawer problem, all this kind of stuff that you know, it was around and people were talking about in terms of science, but it, it, you just, 
it was forced into, I think, more of public attention in a way that should have really uh, been a good lesson for science at the time. Maybe it was a good lesson. I don't know. But speak to some of that, because I, I think that's what you're alluding to before. Yeah, one thing you learn after a while is that people believe what they want to believe. And, and there's no evidence that you can get no data, no amount of charts and graphs, no amount of explanation that is going to change your mind. What does change people's mind is a single personal experience. So that so a book is never going to do that. So I'm appealing then to those of us who, who can apply rational thought to methods, which is, of course, what science is really good at. It's methods to get biases out of the way. And so some of the biases are we want to believe what we want to believe. And so how do you fix that? Well, there, there are pretty good ways of doing that. So that's partly what the story was in the conscious universe as well, to be able to describe how these experiments are done and to, among other things, show that it's not like every so often somebody will write, say, well, did you think of this? You know, are you, are you doing this? And it, well, of course we thought of all of that. It's like the most elementary part of running an experiment is to make sure the controls are what you think they are and that the statistics are right and all of the rest of it. That doesn't mean that mistakes aren't made. I mean, like we, we learn from mistakes and then we don't do it again. But when you look at the history, many, many decades of doing various kinds of experiments, there are very few loopholes left. In fact, in some cases, we don't have any loopholes that we're aware of. Of course, there are always the unknown unknowns uh, that can bite you at some point. But in some cases here, we're not talking about weird laboratory anomalies that only show up when we do experiments. These, these experiments were devised in the first place to take what people report in their real life and find a way of operationalizing it in a controlled manner and then doing it in the laboratory. So you already have a lot of anecdotal evidence, which is not really the currency in science, but it does provide a way of saying, if those experiences as people describe are real and we can put them into the lab and we get similar effects, well, then it probably is real. So some of those anecdotes are exactly the way that people describe them. Okay, so the conscious universe causes quite a stir, again, because you put it in very stark scientific terms and you got the goods and you deliver it. You wait a few years and then Entangled Minds, 2006. How does, that, how does the story arc go from conscious universe to Entangled Minds? Because the question I did not answer in the conscious universe is how does this work? Like, how do, how do we take these kinds of effects and show that they're compatible with our current understanding of the physical world? Because prior to the development, especially of quantum mechanics, but also relativity, it was easy to dismiss these effects because we thought that there, that space, time, matter, and energy were all absolutes, in which case, how could you perceive something that was far away from you? It was, it was considered impossible. And there's still people today, including academics, who say it's impossible because that's not the way the physical world works. Well, they're wrong. And so the, the entangled minds uh, I wrote in response to questions I had gotten about how, how could this possibly fit with our current understanding of physics? That's what that book is about. So it goes... To, moderately deeply into quantum mechanics and interpretations thereof. And it addresses the interesting parallel between 
the same thing in quantum mechanics and in cyber search that are both considered weird. So they both can, they both involve non-local connections through space and time. And they both involve something about the act of intention or observation in observing a system and having that a system change its behavior. And so some would say, well, this, this is a coincidence. It's a meaningless correlation. And I would say, no, I think actually what people report when they have these experiences is a reflection of what we know about the physical world, because it does support those kinds of phenomena. Nevertheless, there are still papers being published regularly, mostly by psychologists who say that these phenomena cannot be real because they violate basic scientific ideas about the way the world works, which is utter nonsense because it doesn't violate anything. It's just that we don't understand how to put all the pieces together yet, but we're, we're no longer in a classical physical world. So experimentally in your lab, what's going on? What are you doing that kind of relates to this entangled minds idea? Well, so we're trying to connect it to quantum mechanics. And so we've done that in two ways. Uh, the first way is using a double slit optical system to see if you can gain which path information, which is uh, the, the, which of the two slits a photon goes through. If you can gain that information by any means, so-called, uh, then you will not see an interference pattern. You reduce the wave-like nature of light and you make it particulate. Look, that is a particle. So you can see the, the change very clearly by looking at the interference pattern that is produced by that kind of optical system. So we had people, many of whom were meditators, asked to use their mind's eye to see if they could tell where the photon was going. Or if they found that too difficult, then just push the photon intentionally so it would only go through one. And so we've, we've now done about two dozen such experiments and uh, some of them work and some of them don't work. But if you do a meta-analysis across the board, it looks like there's pretty good evidence that something is going on, that the, the consciousness is involved in some way in the quantum process. So one of the things that kind of repeats itself here that is really smart the way you did this science is like, you take the conscious universe and you take the presentiment experiment where there's an image flashing up on the screen and you're measuring the human interaction with that and the ways that we can measure it, eye dilation, all this different stuff. But the reason that you set up that experiment that way is because they've been doing that experiment for freshman psychology students for decades and decades. So you said, hey, you guys are familiar with this experiment, right? Well, you never put the alligator clips on this part of it. And if you do, it kind of looks different. And I think that's very, very clever way to do it. And then with the double slit double experiment, slit. you just blow everything up because that is the experiment that has everyone has been danced around for a hundred years. Like, no, it can't really be consciousness is fundamental. Like Max Planck said, I mean, well, I can't really process that. And you said, okay, well, let's just freshen that baby up a little bit too. Let's look at it this way and this way. And is there an interference pattern and can meditators do it? And cause you did, a, 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 you've done a number of kind of, variations on the theme when it comes to bringing the double slit experiment and saying, yes, it really is about consciousness. What are some of the variations that on that theme that you've done? 
Well, first of all, we created a series of different kinds of double slit systems. So we've used originally a continuous beam helium neon laser, which has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. Uh, we've used diode lasers, continuous beam. We've used single photon double slit systems. Each time a conceptual replication of the previous one saying if that worked and this probably ought to work and if this works, that should work and so on. Each time a, a different kind of analysis is required be, given the nature of the data, uh, which is not completely optimal because um, before you do an experiment, you're never quite sure what the analysis should be, especially for this kind of experiment. So that's that's a disadvantage for for doing these, which is why I'm still waiting for more than one other person to do a replication because so far there's only one replication, which for his pilot studies were highly significant and in the same direction that I saw. And for his formal studies, were not significant from a directional perspective, but from a bi-directional perspective, it was. And which is what we have seen in our own experiments too. What, what this means is that if you, if you imagine that you're, nobody's looking at the double slit system, you see a wave-like pattern, you see interference. If somebody's looking at it, you can predict that if you can gain which path information, you will collapse, so-called the collapse wave function, and it'll get a part particulate pattern, a diffraction pattern. Well, a, that's a directional hypothesis that's saying it will go from this to this. Uh, what uh, my colleague had found was uh, that he saw a significant result, but sometimes it went in one direction and sometimes it went in a different direction and a different experiment. So we've analyzed, went back and analyzed our data as well. And we find that too, that between one person and the next person, some people will make it go one way, some will go the other way. And if you use a variance measure, as opposed to a mean shift, you actually get pretty significant results that hold up. What this tells us is that, as usual, things are never quite as simple as you originally think. It's not simply that consciousness collapses the wave function, but the way I would put it rather is that it seems to steer what is going on. It steers the wave function. Now, where else do we see that? Well, we see it as the quantum Zeno effect. You, you repeatedly measure a quantum system it will freeze its evolution. And that sometimes it will freeze it in one direction, sometimes it will freeze it in the other direction. It depends a lot on how fast you are, you're measuring it. So maybe something like that is going on, that it's, we're, we're steering the, the way that the photons are behaving rather than simply collapsing something. I was not upset with that kind of, of result because, as I said, that uh, the reason you do an experiment is to see what kind of answer the universe will give you when you, when you present a question. And if you're lucky, it will, it will give you an answer, which is even more interesting than the one that you originally asked. And in this case, that is, seems to be what's happening. It seems like, yeah, there's, there's weird stuff going on, which we wouldn't have known before unless we actually went ahead and did the experiment. So supernormal comes along at 2013, and this is kind of a shift. I'm all these are a shift, but this is kind of a shift in a different direction. What's that book about? And then experimentally, where are you at 2010, 2013? Well, I also want to add in before I go there, uh, one other quantum oriented experiment that we more recently published, which involves the use of entangled photons as the target of a mind matter interaction, because we wanted to look at non-local mind interacting with non-local matter. 
and did it do anything? The short answer is yeah, we were able to modulate it. Uh, part of the experiment was looking at, could you increase the strength of entanglement and then intentionally decrease the strength of entanglement? Well, you would think a priori that decreasing the strength of entanglement would be relatively easy because it's pretty fragile. It doesn't take much to collapse it. But what we found uniformly, even with feedback that was designed to increase it and decrease it, it only increased. The fidelity of entanglement increased as a result of intention focused on it, which is really interesting. And so again, that was not expected. I mean, we, we hope we'd see something interesting going on, but it, we every time we get a nice surprise and a result like that, then we think, okay, this is still worth pursuing because if we only ever show the results that we expect to get, well, that's not so interesting. Okay, so super. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, because you're you're on you're so on point with that. It is so important. So if you can back up and break that down a little bit, fifth grade level. What is entanglement? We don't have to talk about non-local mind too much, but the the why are you making that connection between non-local mind and entanglement? Why does that resonate for you? And then. What is what is the experimental effect? Again, break that down in more simple terms in terms of what you're seeing and why we can read the kind of excitement in your face and in your voice when you talk about how it kind of doesn't really go the way that you thought. It really just goes in this one direction. And I can see the wheels turning for you in terms of what that means and Global Consciousness Project and all the rest of this stuff that we're doing. So spend some time and break that down, break that down for us, if you would. All of the experiments involving mind and matter are essentially asking the question, is mind, is it causal? Or put it in broader sense, is consciousness causal in the physical world? Does it play a role other than within the body? And so one way of thinking of it, of it is that I can use my intention and make something happen with 100% reliability. So I shall now demonstrate that. Uh, right arm, move up. Well, it did that. Well, it's just a mind-matter interaction. My intention has made something happen. The question here, though, is what else can it do? Is it purely something within the body or does it act at a distance? So the non-local aspect of it is saying that at a distance, my thoughts can influence something else and we can measure that it actually happened. Uh, what makes it, and that's, that's uh, non-local in space. The, the other part, of course, is non-local in time. And there's evidence that that is also possible, but it makes people's brains explode and uh, I don't want to go there right now. <laughs> so so the, again, the, the simplest way of thinking of it is asking the question, is consciousness actually causal? You have billions of people out there who are praying that, that things in Ukraine will get better and so on. Does that do anything other than make you feel good? Well, a lot of people believe it does do something. Either it's intercessory prayer with some deity or it's the focused attention or affirmations or whatever. This is like in, in the populace, this is the way people think. So these experiments are looking at that. Sometimes at a, a much more macroscopic level, like seeing if we can affect the structure of water, water molecule structure, which we've done or many, many other kinds of targets. And the reason why you go down into the quantum scale is partially because there's a little door opened that says, A, there's a non-local things happening, which is interesting, sounds like psychic stuff. And because of this, this 
peculiarity, which you don't see in classical physics, which is that observation matters. Well, of course, from a physics perspective, you say, well, no, it's just about measurement. Well, what is measurement? Is it about knowing what's happening or is it about an irreversible process? There's lots of discussion about what that means. For, for those of us who uh, are interested more in, uh, in large-scale effects, like I have here, where do I have it? Here. So I bent this spoon. So here's a large soup spoon, which somehow I, I, I bent. And in, as other people have said, that it feels like taffy momentarily, and, and you just squish it. It didn't take any force, really, other than just sort of pushing it over. Well, I've tried many ways then to see if I put it in boiling water, will it revert? Will you know, does it become soft? All of those questions. No, it's a hard piece of metal. So that's a macroscopic demonstration of something going on, which apparently it's something to do with the mind in some way, because it does. If you just have a spoon, you leave it there. It doesn't do that. So why did it do that? So in a laboratory, we we have yet to find people who can do this kind of thing on demand. Like take take a bar of metal like this one and just bend it. Well, we know the tensile forces and all the rest, you you can't do that, at least not by human force. But if somebody can do that, and I've seen pictures of people taking things like rebars and just going, well, that should be impossible, but it happened. So we go into the lab and we we try to figure out what does this mean for our understanding of the physical world? In quantum mechanics in particular, for the entangled photons experiment, here we're talking about one of the fundamental aspects, maybe as Schrodinger said, the fundamental aspect of quantum mechanics is the idea that when you have two particles that interact and they go on their merry way, that they share properties and independent of space and time. So the, it's not quite right to say that if you take two photons or two electrons and you separate them and you twiddle one, the other one will respond. That's, that's not quite right, but it's close. And, and the idea is that they... They're not independent anymore. They share properties through space and through time. So that has been first predicted and then after many years verified in the lab. And now it's being used experimentally for communications and cryptography and things like that. So it's, it's a real thing. In fact, quantum computers would not work unless that was true. So, so you have so, a couple points I just want to make sure people understand. So you can create this quantum modem kind of thing, and you can do this thing, and you can see demonstrations of it. And I think China is kind of maybe ahead of the game a little bit on that, although who knows who's ahead of what game. But there is, you know, for people who need the engineering kind of proof of it, there it is. It kind of works, and it kind of does it, and it's using these same principles. So again, what you do, the trick that you do is you say, okay, you guys unknowingly have opened the door. I like the way you said that before. Let me step all the way through. And by the way, I'm going to bring some of my friends here, some of my friends who are meditators and say, oh yeah, we can do that. And some of my friends who are just people off the street that says, hey, I'll give it a try. And now they're getting into this thing at a level that just kind of blows everyone up, right? So kind of make connect some of those dots that I'm loosely throwing around there. Well, it go all the way back to Max Planck, who came up with the idea of the quantum. And most of his contemporaries at the time, they were idealists, philosophical idealists. So they, they felt that consciousness was fundamental. They came up with the idea of quantum mechanics. So if you, we marry together 
the underlying philosophy of the founders of quantum mechanics with the phenomena themselves, then it, it almost becomes obvious that if consciousness is really fundamental, it should be able to do something with these quantum systems. So that's, I mean, it's, this is not genius here. It is, it's kind of, it presents itself immediately. And you do find occasionally some mainstream physicists saying, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to test these kinds of ideas? Maybe someday somebody will do that. Maybe it has a 2% chance of working. Well, you know, okay, we've already done that. So the second reason then for doing an experiment involving entanglement in particular is because entanglement, you, it, we, we think of something as entangled or not entangled, but it's not binary. You have a whole bunch of classical systems where particles really are separate. So they might be correlated, but they're not connected at all. And their properties are completely independent. In the quantum world, the properties are, are there and there's some kind of a um, correlation going on, which is stronger than classical correlations. So we can talk about this in terms of the strength of the correlation. But that's not a constant. It's, it, it varies all over the place. It goes from just barely above classical, which is kind of a weak correlation, to very strong. But there's an upper limit. And the upper limit, according to orthodox quantum mechanics today, is called the Cyrelson bound. So this is named after a Russian mathematician called Boris Cyrelson, who came up with the idea that mathematically, there should be an upper limit to how strong this entanglement can get. And so there were many experiments to see, could you go past that? Because if you could, it would mean that the current formulation of quantum mechanics is incomplete. And of course, that would be, that's earth shattering. People getting very, very close to it with very sensitive equipment, but no one has surpassed it yet. So we thought, okay, since it looks like maybe there's something going on with a double slit system, maybe we can modulate the strength of, of entanglement and maybe even push it above the Cyrelson bound. If we could do that, it would mean not only is orthodox quantum mechanics incomplete, but that it requires consciousness in some way in order to modulate it above that bound. So we thought, okay, experimentally it's interesting, but if it worked, it would be theoretically extremely important. So we were not able to push it above the Cyrelson bound. And we think uh, one of the reasons is maybe what we're dealing with is such a small, a weak effect from the mind that it wasn't able to do it. But the other thing is that the apparatus that we were using, which is a commercial apparatus, anybody could buy it, it sits on your desktop. Uh, when you look at uh, how far we would have had to push it in order to go above the Cyrelson bound, it was somewhere between six and seven sigma. So a massively statistically strong effect. And we never saw anything that strong. So we, it simply the apparatus wasn't sensitive enough or we didn't try hard enough or something, but we weren't able to do it. In the description you just gave, you're dancing back and forth between the woo-woo aspect of this that people use to just kind of dismiss it, and then the the hard science, if you will, like the mathematics of it. Do you want to speak to the fact that when you say orthodox quantum physics, what that means to a scientist who is in that field? Well, a minority of scientists are interested in what quantum mechanics means. Most people learning quantum mechanics are doing it as a mechanic, right? You learn certain tools, certain mathematical tools, you turn the crank and you're able to predict certain things. And it's extremely useful. Our whole modern world is basically uses quantum mechanics to make predictions about how electronics work and a whole bunch of other things. 
So only a minority, typically people are, are more philosophically oriented, perhaps, are interested in, well, what in the world does this mean? Because quantum mechanics, after all, is a purely mathematical theory. It's, it's just, it's math. In fact, the, the, there's one equation which you can use to show all the quantum mechanics. It's not a long equation. It takes a lot to unpack it in order to understand what it all means, but, uh, or at least mathematically what it means. But what it then means in terms of fundamentals in our understanding of reality, that is still a completely open question. So one of the ways of seeing that is uh, every so often there's a survey taken among physicists on their interpretation of quantum mechanics. And so they give a number of different questions, like, do you imagine quantum mechanics is this or this or this? One of the questions is about the role of the observer, which is about, well, like, does consciousness really matter or not? Well, of the people answering the survey, 22% said, yeah, it is fundamentally important to, to understanding the nature of quantum mechanics. Well, these are professional physicists who are working this problem. So it's a minority, but it's not that small of a minority. One in five physicists out there think, yeah, there's something really important about consciousness. The vast majority of research that goes on in quantum mechanics is not looking at the fundamentals. In a sense, that is what we're looking at. We, we want to see whether, uh, why were all of these founders of quantum mechanics who are idealists, which is not in favor very much within physics, especially. Why did, how could they have come up with something like this? and yet hold a belief that consciousness really was fundamental. Do they know something we don't know? Well, it's, it comes down to philosophical preference in some case, but nevertheless, it didn't stop them from revolutionizing physics. So, okay, let's give their ideas a shot and see what happens. Okay, Supernormal 2013. How, what's the story arc here and what's going on in the lab? So after writing about the physics of this, uh, then people started saying, yeah, but, but still, the uh, physics doesn't yet explain what's going on. So, you know, is there something wrong with our worldview? Do we, we need some other way of looking at it? And, of course, I already knew that the, the founders of quantum mechanics were idealists. So I said, well, it, let's look actually in two parts at uh, traditions that are not the current tradition within science. So science rests upon the philosophical assumptions of materialism. Everything is made out of matter and energy, and that's the end of it, in which case your, your brain and you are the same. They're like consciousness for, for, I would say, radical philosophers say that there is no consciousness. It's just an illusion that's somehow associated with something to do with brain activity. And this is still a dogma within the neurosciences, that, that consciousness doesn't really do anything, but it is an emergent property of brain activity. They, you know, they'll admit that because you have close... Uh, neural correlates of consciousness, showing the relationship there. I look at that correlation as the same way a statistician would and would say, well, just because you have a correlation, it doesn't tell you the direction of the causation unless you have a really good reason to, to think that you know the direction of causation. So, so supernormal was the uh, looking at Eastern esoteric traditions to say, well, the modern way of viewing reality is relatively new. It's only a few hundred years old, this idea of materialism. You can find instances of materialism even in Eastern philosophy, and you can find it everywhere. But by, by more, uh, much more of the proportion of the esoteric traditions were all about consciousness being fundamental. 
And, and so I used the, uh, the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali as a way of demonstrating that something about 2,000 years or more before was the first written account of what happens when you do diligent meditative practice. What happens? Well, one of the things that Patanjali wrote about was, this just happens. And what is he talking about? 25 different kinds of psychic abilities that come about as a result of this disciplined practice. So I use that as, a, as kind of a way of saying, Patanjali was writing about these superpowers a long time ago. Is there any reason for us today to take any of that seriously? And so I systematically went through each one of the, of the cities, these special powers, to say, is there any laboratory evidence suggesting that meditation does anything like this? And the short answer is yes. In which case, Patanjali also talks about things like levitation and invisibility and other like comic book effects. Uh, what about those? Well, we don't know. We, don't, we can't bring that into the lab and we don't never see that into the lab, except if he was right on these first set of phenomena, well, was he just making up the rest of it? You know, what, that's a you know, kind of a weird way to write a book. So I kind of suspect that these super psychic effects like levitation, they might be real. And when you look at the literature, including contemporary literature, like in Tibetan meditation, they, they will say, yeah, the cities are definitely real, but the people who can do these advanced cities, extremely rare, even among people who are lifelong practitioners. So it's not only the practice, there's some talent that seems to come into play that allows for these super abilities to, to exist. Yeah, you know, uh, Yogananda, the famous yogi, wrote Autobiography of a Yogi, has an, had an ashram. It's right up the road from me. I go up there, look off to it, and do yoga all the time just because I like to do yoga, and it's a beautiful spot right there on the beach or overlooking the beach. But anyone who picks up that book and reads the first 30 pages, I mean, in the way that you're talking about it, he just talks about it in a very matter-of-fact way of, you know, hey, this is what happened to me, this is my life, and then my guru bilocated from here to there and, you know, shape-shifted into, you know, it's just, he's not talking about it like to shock you or anything. He's just saying, this is my life, this is my autobiography. So, yeah, I think it is interesting to look at that culturally. Was there any, I know some of the lab experiments overlap with this stuff, but was is there anything you would kind of pull out as experimentally super normal where you thought maybe one extraordinary person you had in the lab or anything like that? Because that, that's even something to talk about. You know, the super talented versus the just person off the street offers different insights as well as I've heard you talk about. But anything in yeah. that realm? Well, are you talking about Swami Veda? Sure. If you want to go there. I think I might have mentioned about Swami Veda participating in an experiment. Um, so Swami Veda is part out of a Himalayan tradition of, uh, of meditation, uh, had been meditating since he was a child. So that when I met him, maybe 70 years at that point, and part of his tradition was to develop or at least recognize the cities, the cities would develop. And so this was one of my, in fact, the very first experiment they did using a, an optical system to see if it had, if you can manipulate quantum properties in it. And I described it to him as what he would do. He would sit outside our shielded room and then mentally do something to a light beam inside the shielded room. And so uh, he didn't know if he'd be able to do that or not, but he, he was certainly willing to try. So he sat down outside the, the lab, 
They're outside our shielded room. And then in one minute segments, I would tell them, okay, now put your mind in that beam, like send it in the beam over there, or now withdraw it and relax. So one minute, every minute we do that. Well, about halfway through the experiment, uh, I mentally lost it. Like I, I kind of, for a moment, I forgot what we were doing. I, I didn't know like, what, what is happening here? And then I brought myself back somehow and kept going with the experiment. So later when we analyzed the data, we found that about halfway through the experiment, we started to get a really big result, like exactly the kind of thing I was hoping we would get. It was as though he was able to block a light beam, to put it in simple terms. So I was talking about this to the two videographers that we had filming the whole thing from two different directions at that time. And they both gave me a kind of startled look because they, they had compared notes among themselves. And both of them had mentally gone away at the same time that I did. This was halfway through the experiment. It's like they kept filming, but they, they were just disoriented or something for a moment. So I asked Swami Beta about that later. I said, well, when, you know, when did you think you actually were able to do this? Because the data shows that you did pretty good. He said, well, it took a while, maybe halfway through, he figured out what was necessary in order to do this. And it was a city. It was, it's a mind matter interaction city where you're controlling light itself. And they said, well, how did you, how did you jump into the room there? Because all you have is your mind to do that. And he, he gave it an interesting result or answer, which was, uh, I didn't go anywhere. My mind didn't go anywhere. It's all in here, point, point to his heart. So the universe is inside from the point of view of these cities. It's not outside. That's, in a sense, why you're able to control it, because you're, you have much better control over your, what's going on inside. And we're talking about deep levels of consciousness now, which you can think of as pointing to your heart. It's not really in your heart, but it's, it's deep somehow. And it's, there is no outside at that point, which is why I also like this clip from uh, Ramana Maharshi, who has asked, uh, after listening to the, the guru talk for a while about uh, how should people behave. So somebody asked him, how should we treat other people? And his response is, there are no other people. It's all completely connected and it's all inside. So I thought that was quite interesting. So I, I don't often have the opportunity to, to work with somebody who is such an adept. And unfortunately, uh, Swami Veda has passed away now, so you can't do anymore, at least not in this form. Um, but when you do have the opportunity to work with somebody who has been meditating a very long time, they can do, not all of them, because some of them are not interested in developing the cities. I mean, some of them explicitly avoid doing that. Like in the yogic tradition, the usual way a teacher would say about the cities is if something arises, just you know, acknowledge it and just keep going, because that's not the end goal. Okay, uh, this plays right into Real Magic 2018, but explain the, the leap here. Well, supernormal is all about Eastern philosophical ideas and the Eastern esoteric traditions. Supernormal is the Western esoteric traditions. So in the East, you have the cities, special powers. In the West, you have magic. They are essentially exactly the same. And even the methods of being able to produce magical effects you can map onto yogic methods directly. It's all about intention. It's about deep states of mind. A uh, yogi would talk about samadhi. A magician will talk about gnosis. It's it basically, it's a parallel to each other. 
And of course, this is not too surprising because if you go back far enough in history, there was no East and West per se. They all came out of one, one source, Zoroaster, or, you know, people plus or minus a couple of centuries. So, so uh, the, the magical tradition, I figured, well, I don't need to talk about yoga at all. In this case, I can talk about magic because of Harry Potter, among other things. People have learned enough about it through stories and mythology and our entertainment world to at least wonder, is that based on anything or is it pure fantasy? Well, it appears that it is based on something. So just as they did for the yogic cities and showing that there is some science that can be brought to bear, for magical practices, the same is true. Some magical practices map on very, very nicely to the experimental work in parapsychology. Okay, so here's the part that I think gets a little bit tricky. So you're at that level, you're pounding on this consciousness thing because it gets to the philosophical assumption underlying science. And I've heard you talk about this before in a very, very eloquent way, in a very interesting way. And because again, it's, it's obvious, but it's not well understood or processed. And that's that science is resting on philosophical assumptions. You know, the biggest one is that the world is out there and we can measure it, which you kind of shatter that one with every experiment that you do. But there's a bunch of other philosophical assumptions, kind of the main ones. I mean, if you really kind of get to where people live, it's like, is there good and bad? Is there God? What should I do with my life? Um, why am I here kind of thing? And so magic kind of answers that in a different way than I think most people are used to having it answered. What are your thoughts about some of those really deep philosophical questions? Yeah, you're talking about issues of morality and ethics, and uh, it's it might be related to all this, but I'm, I'm not sure I would go there, except for w with one proviso. And that is, uh, uh, if, if you completely adopt materialism as the, your way that you'll understand reality, then that leads to a picture of the world was, which is nihilism, which means there, there is no ultimate purpose to anything. Uh, when, when your body dies, your dad, that's the end of it. Um, and, and as, collected into this quip of uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's, that gives rise to the modern world that we see today where essentially business is extractive. It is, it's taking things out of the natural world, turning into something else and then selling it to you. Well, that's not sustainable. I mean, maybe wind power might be or solar power, but taking things out of the earth and, and, and assuming that it's going to go on forever well, that's not the case. It cannot go on forever. And we're, we're beginning to reap the consequences of that model, especially when it comes to things like, uh, like oil. So we have a, like double whammies. We have a philosophy which is underlying a lot of modern civilization, uh, which says there's no purpose to anything. You don't really matter ultimately. Nothing on earth matters. And when students go through, a, especially a, a, a course in science, they will, they will absorb materialism without even being taught that it is a philosophy rather than a set of assumptions and assumptions by their very nature are something you can't prove. It's something that you believe that this is a good answer to something. One of the reasons why it is, continues to be 
taught and used, and a lot of people defend it to their death, is because it's very effective. So you don't want to throw away something that is very effective. Materialism as a doctrine within science is extremely useful. What I would say then though is, is it sufficient to account for everything? And the answer there from the kind of work I do in lots of other areas now, no, it is not able to explain everything. What that tells me is that just as you see again and again throughout the history of science, that at one point people said, okay, now we really understand what's going on. We got it. And then somebody comes along with a new idea, new experiments and say, oh, okay, what we thought we knew was actually a special case. And now we have a more expansive understanding of reality. So I see materialism as a special case that pertains to certain aspects, limited aspects of the world, which is extremely powerful and a very good way of understanding it, but it does not account for everything. So what, how do we expand it? I would say one way to expand it is to assume that materialism is a subset of idealism. So idealism, and once you do that, magic, psychic stuff, the cities, all of that are become easy to understand without doing anything to materialism. So here's where I'm, here's where I'm kind of trying to go with that. Your work, it, 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 tell me if you agree with this or if you don't, but is not inconsistent with what people are doing with the near-death experience science, the shared death experience science, which is really interesting. And it's, some people say it's anecdotal, but it's really not. It's casework in the same way that medicine across the board is a combination of casework and, uh, and as well as kind of exper experimental laboratory work. But what you're saying, what your findings are, are not inconsistent with saying there are these extended consciousness realms. Now let's go see what we might learn about those extended consciousness realms. And I think you are making some of those same leaps, whether you like to or not. You are deciding that you won't do the spoon bending exercise on board a plane. Because you're like, is this maybe going to make the wings of the plane kind of go down? So yes. We, we are in the game of trying to figure out what these, ex, what these extended consciousness realms are and how we fit into them. And I think like the near-death experience science and the reincarnation science and the shared death experience science nudge us towards there is a moral imperative. I mean, that's what they're just kind of saying consistently over and over again. So I'm just wondering well, where, oh, how we... Why? Why would those experiences have a moral imperative? That's what's that's what's reported. Like so, if you start just compiling that data the best you can, and you go pin von Lommel, and you go start doing medical surveys of people after they recover from their cardiac arrest, and you ask them a series of questions, and you do it in the most scientific way you can in terms of good medical survey, that's what they report overwhelmingly, like 90%, you know, these off the chart kind of things. So that's just the data. Yeah. So, uh, so there, there was this uh, essay contest, which you're aware of by the Bigelow uh, Foundation. And so we, we submitted uh, one of the essays and we got uh, one of the prizes. And part of the upshot of what we were talking about is if you look at the eight or nine different classes of evidence for survival. Uh, how, how should we best interpret that? Does it mean that they're actually, the consciousness and the body can be separate? And 
once it's separate, it retains enough about your own memories and personality and so on. So that when a medium reports talking to Uncle Bob, it's like a, an invisible form of Uncle Bob. So that, I mean, most people, when they think about survival, they're thinking about you survive in some other world somehow, and you're still connected to this world. That's, that's sort of the, a naive way of thinking about what survival is thought about. Like the idea of heaven, you're exactly the same as now, except maybe you're younger and you don't need to eat or something like that. So what we're doing is, is questioning there, first of all, if you do a systematic review of these various kinds of evidence and you assign a letter grade as to how good the evidence is from a scientific perspective, none of them are A. About the best you get is a B plus. So some of it's compelling. I mean, the, you know, the whole package of, of these stories are very impressive, uh, but does it mean that there is survival of any type? Well, we concluded that we, we don't know at this point. And the main reason we don't know is because we, all of the evidence, 100% of the evidence for survival comes from living people. So this is, and the jargon is, is called living agent psi. It's the, it's, it's the lap hypothesis that it's all based on psychic stuff. And I get very vigorous debates going on from people saying this couldn't possibly be psi because it's way too complicated. It's like it requires some sort of departed entity or something. And I say, well, that assumes that we know everything about psi at this point. Well, we don't. We, we don't have any idea what the limitations of psi is. Something could look extremely complicated from one perspective, but from another, if you're really good at some kind of psychic perception, you can bypass all the complexity in one shot. So our argument was that the figuring out the answer to the question of is there survival is extremely important for everyone. We're all gonna encounter that thing at some point. Uh, but can we answer it now, given what we know? I would say the answer is no. We need to See, do a lot more research. Sure, a lot more research is always a good answer. But the little judo that you're doing that I never quite understand, experimentally, you've kind of falsified science. You've brought us to the edge, to the limit of it, really, in a way of saying, well, we really can't measure any of this stuff anyway. I mean, how do you respond to someone who says, well, okay, Dean, that's great. You know what you've just proven? What I already know is that there's demons in your room that are controlling all these experiments. And you can't say, gee, I've falsified that. That doesn't happen at all. And you can't explain, you know, how the Swami is different from the average person. I have a friend, Shirley Black, uh, amazing person, has three near-death experiences, always had a little bit of this PK thing going on, but it's really woken up in her third near-death experience. And now she can do, she can spin a pinwheel under a glass. And she goes, oh, I'll go to the lab. And she goes to three different labs, major university, University of Virginia, uh, Ryan Institute, Duke uh, in Canada. I mean, not like fake stuff. She goes, oh, you want to study me? Put the wheel down there inside the glass and I can spin it. So the whole PK thing is interesting, but it's connected to this near death experience, at least in her it, mind it is. And it, yeah, but is, I think your, yeah, but your work, you can't, your work, I think puts us past the edge where we can kind of pull it back in and say, oh, wait a minute, we have science to say this way or that way. Haven't you just kind of thrown us in this quandary of, hey, the world isn't out there and we can't measure it. Well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by we can't measure it because all of our experiments do involve measurement. 
So, I mean, maybe but you don't know what you you don't know exactly. You don't know exactly what you're measuring. There's an asterisk. Well, neither there. neither is that the case in most experiments. Any measurement is an indirect measurement of something. It's a, a reflection of something. So, in the case of, like, say, a Gansfeld telepathy experiment, we're getting an, an indirect measure of of what people are experiencing, and the results of that suggests that what's going on in one person's head can show up in the other person's head. So that's this is the operational operationalization of people's experiences in real life about telepathy that somehow they're sharing thoughts. Well, in a laboratory, we can re we can re reproduce that. The question underneath it is, well, how did the thoughts get from one person to the other? And at this point, it, the best metaphor that we can use is that there's something like entanglement. It's, it's probably not entanglement, at least not as we see in a physics lab, but it's certainly like it. And, but this, this doesn't bother me very much that we don't know exactly what's going on because at the leading edge of knowledge, you never know what's going on. You're, you're doing the best that you can to ask questions and hopefully get an answer back that will address a hypothesis. And most hypotheses are not about what is the fundamentally thing going on. That's very difficult to do a, an experiment looking at fundamentals at that level. Most of the time you're looking at various models of the way you imagine things are going on. And it's through testing various models that you begin to develop a picture of what you think might be going on fundamentally, but ultimately we really don't know. And that, that goes for the fundamentals in most disciplines. You, ask, you start asking those annoying why questions again and again, Well, we don't know yet. No, I, I hear you. And believe me, I'm 1000% how far you've kicked the can you know, down the road, it, it, it's tremendous. I, I, I do think though, you know, like Cheryl Lee in her near-death experiences, if you go back and look at her near-death experiences, they're amazingly consistent with these ones that are collected under the best medically controlled survey conditions by which we base all this other stuff. And what they consistently tell us as part of that, which would kind of turn, turn this thing upside down, is that our measurements are in this reality, which is fundamentally a lesser reality. And these extended consciousness realms are kind of a greater reality. So we're kind of looking through the wrong end of the telescope. They're, these people are saying, hey, I in that mode, all questions are answered, you know, and it's, I get, I know everything, and then I'm forced down into this. Yeah, but also vessel. keep in mind, keep in mind that just as with mystics saying, they say, well, the actual experience is ineffable. Therefore, for me to talk about it, I'm going to have to squash some amazing thing that happened to me into words that can only provide a pale expression of what actually happened. And more importantly, that it, uh, the paper just came out within, within the past month showing uh, an unusual case where an epileptic, I guess, was having their brain monitored and they died. And, and they were able to, and remain dead, not a near-death experience, an actual death experience while they were measuring the EEG. And they found to their amazement that there's activity going on for a long time. Yeah, I saw that. This, <laughs> this immediately it, raises questions about what is going on with an NDE. Is not, it a dream not, of the brain? It, that, that data isn't really consistent with uh, explaining away which they've been trying to do forever, the near-death experience. It's not in terms of the, the patterns, the EEG patterns that they're saying in the delta no. gamma range. It doesn't really match that way. And it really doesn't match 
uh, from a time perspective either. I and mean, people who report the near-death experience, a lot of times it's like this one woman who I had on the show, you know, she's like, boom, I got stabbed. And immediately I'm outside of my body. I'm not dead, but I see the whole thing go to the, I see the ambulance go to the hospital. I see all this stuff going, which is consistent with all these. And then I leave my body and then I have this near-death experience. So again, if we were going to take that tiny little window that we get sometimes with uh, some data like this EEG, EEG data, and we would really try and honestly apply it against the best evidence we have in the near-death experience, I don't think it holds up well. I want to be mindful of your time, so I want to bounce on to a couple other things I want to see if we can hit in the final minutes we have. Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, what is 11th man or whatever, 6th man, walk on the moon? 6th. 6th man, founder of IONS, passed just a few years ago. Did you have opportunity to interact with Dr. Mitchell much? Yeah, he would, uh, in his later years, he would come by for board meetings at ION. So yeah, I had many opportunities to talk to him. Because the interesting thing I think about his story is, like, he founds IONS because he has this unity consciousness experience. He's flying back and he sees the little blue marble that is Earth, and he has the unity consciousness experience. But mm -hmm. later in life, he says, what I really had was an ET experience. And he and he's becomes very interested and he says, I know it to be true that, you know, ET is real, contact has been going on for a long time. I know people in the military. I was sworn to secrecy on this. I upheld the secrecy. I don't think it's good to uphold the secrecy anymore. Now I'm telling the truth. Have you ever reflected on that in terms of, cause, cause that's interesting how we set up ions to say, here's a safe little way to kind of partially explore what I really know. I mean, that's one way to read that. That doesn't have to be your way of reading it, but what do you, any thoughts on that? Well, the IONS um, mission as described for many years was uh, we explore the frontiers of consciousness, which was in alignment with what Edgar was interested in. After all, he did have that experience he went on to have many other very strange psychic experiences. Uh, he didn't talk about UFOs and ETs for a very long time because he, he knew how people respond to, to that and already recognizing that there's a credibility problem when you start talking psychic stuff to other people. So we have tend to avoid the whole UFO ET thing, mainly because it's like a binary bomb. It, you, you combine two things that are slightly explosive and you have a major problem on your hands. So is, is there a relationship? Well, maybe because a lot of UFO sightings and, and ideas about contact with ET, it's about consciousness apparently because the communication typically is telepathic and the ETs can do things that, that you shouldn't be able to do, like walk through walls and stuff. So... Whether at some point in the future we, we'd start to pursue that, I, at this point, I would guess probably not. And, and the reason is that um, much of what we do uh, from a scientific perspective requires doing it in a laboratory environment, or at least under some kind of controlled conditions. And if we can find an ET who can come to the lab and do stuff, we'd be very happy to entertain that. But it's very similar to like somebody who says, well, one time I, I levitated. That's great. Can you do it now? No, I can't do it anymore. Sorry. 
we, you know, we can't, what we want to do is advance through science as best as we can. And in the process, maybe slightly change some of the ideas or the epistemology that's used in science, but not to go off into what I would consider left field, where all you have are stories. And yes, there are similarities among the stories. There's some of them are very compelling. People have transformative experiences as a result of the stories or the experience that they have, and they come back different. Uh, and that's certainly valuable work. There are people who are studying these sorts of things, but it's at this point not something that we want to look at. Tell us about cognigenics and particularly, um, you know, it relates back to the first part of this interview in that the origin story from this, as I understand it, comes directly out of experimental work. So tell us what it is, what it's about, and that link, the origin story, if you would. I mean, the origin of, of cognogenics? Yes. Yes, because isn't okay, it, yeah. uh, it, was I, am I mistaken? It, it did, it, it did seem to come out of this research, like who can do this stuff better than other people? Could there possibly be a genetic link to that? And yeah. then that, go ahead. It, it's related to that, but it's not directly because this is the, the genetics of psychic ability or psychic talent. That is a project at IONS. Cognigenics is, of course, paying attention to that since I was involved in that too, but it's a, it's a, a neurogenetic engineering company where eventually we go to a place where we might be able to enhance or suppress psychic abilities genetically. And that we think it has something to do with connections in the brain. So in order to get there though, we have to start with something which is much simpler. So what we're doing initially is uh, looking at the mechanism of action for SSRI drugs, selective serotonin uptake inhibitors, re-uptake re re inhibitors. So these are the are things like Prozac and Zoloft and all of the drugs out there that are used for anxiety and depression and a few other things. Well, if you look at how those things work in the brain, it, it, it involves a certain kind of neuronal receptor that it's modulating. It's basically downregulating that receptor. You downregulate it if it's too hyperexcited, you will become calm and depression also begins to lift. So we figured with modern genetic tools, especially CRISPR, which is the, the most recent version of a genetic editing tool, you can very precisely target certain neurons and cause them to downregulate. So we kind of bypass all of the, the problems, which, which are huge problems of contraindications in SSRI drugs and most pharma, because that goes all the way through your body and instead target just the places in the brain that you need to change. So we've done experiments now that we're able to, pro we provided proof of principle that the method works and our secret sauce in this is how do you get it in the brain without putting a six inch needle into your head? Because that's how a lot of these studies are being done. And, and also not having to put it in your cerebral spinal fluid and not having to do IV and all of those other methods. We developed a method which will get it into your head and go to the right spot and we can show that it actually does downregulate, just like an SSRI does. But at this point, we think, we, in fact, even from the mouse studies, we don't see any side effects. So this, this is part of a, uh, a big and very fast-growing industry of what will become modern medicine. And people today are, are still, some people are afraid of, of mRNA treatments. 
they they were afraid of it in the same way that people used to be afraid of organ transplants and prosthetics and all kinds of stuff. This is simply the way, whether they like it or not, this is where medicine is going because it's extremely effective. So again, does this have anything to do with psychic stuff? Not yet. But down the road, we think maybe we'll be able to use the platform that we've created to do some interesting things for psychic talent. So I'm not a Luddite, and I get that what what you said is true. This is going to happen. Someone's going to yep. do it, get used to it, and if we don't do it, somebody else will. Why do you? It's already be- happened. Okay, why do you want to be that guy? I mean, there there are a, a lot of legitimate concerns, especially right now we're on the heels of what some scientists are calling, you know, the greatest medical crime against humanity in history. And, you know, if you look at just, you know, just the other day, who's the guy who presented in front of uh, Congress? Oh, Senator Ron Johnson and the, the effects of the vaccine on the DOD. It's staggering. Mm-hmm. 300% increase in uh, uh, miscarriages, 500% increase of this, 600%. We have no idea what's going on with this gene therapy, bioweapon kind of stuff. I don't, I know we have to push forward, but how do we do it in a way that and or do we have to push forward? What is what is going on here? And and what do you think is the path forward for the legitimate concerns that a lot of people have? And on the other hand, the prospects of you know medical science advancing. Every advancement carries risk. Uh, a, an enormous amount of medical problems can be traced to genetic origins. And we're not talking about like single genes that are producing a problem like cystic fibrosis or sickle cell anemia. Many of like all of the whole process of neurodegeneration that leads to dementia, that leads to Alzheimer's, all that. These are very serious problems that have so far not been solved by anything. So there is the, the pharma that's available, for example, for Alzheimer's at best slows it down a tiny little bit. But if you have Alzheimer's, you're going to die from Alzheimer's. So wouldn't it be nice if we figured out a way to prevent that or treat it or cure it even? And not just that, but all the, like every organ has its own set of things that can go wrong. Would it be better to figure out a way to, to fix that or not? Yes, every new treatment, every, every new advancement in science, the development of the atomic bomb was a risk as a result of what Mary Curie was doing. Does that mean it's better not to know or to know? And, and part of the scientific creed, at least the one that I follow, is it's always better to know because at least then you're going to make decisions. I know how mRNA works. And whether the, is the data that he's actually using something that other scientists will agree to? I don't know. But, you know, the, I would have to go into this and look in detail. Is this actually the way it's working? Well... Well, Dean, I mean, they have they they got their data from the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database. They got it from the DOD's own database. It's not like he cooked up these numbers, you know. And then, and this then is if, similar. 
this could be similar to the other databases where people put in side effects that they say that they had as a result of getting a vaccine. And that's just people reporting things and you have no way of knowing what's going on. So I don't know whether this database is vetted. Maybe well, it it's is. The, it's the DOD's database of like the that number of- That doesn't mean of, anything. But hold on. No, when, it, when you talk about miscarriages, I, you know, there can be underreporting, overreporting, but you got to believe they're kind of pretty spot on with the number of miscarriages. And then what the other thing he has is he has doctors that come forward and say, hey, yeah, it's consistent with what I'm observing in working with soldiers. There's a lot more cases of all the stuff that you guys are talking about. So the DOD's right. response was, go ahead. Part of the problem in this is, again, we're dealing with correlations as opposed to causation. So are, are people more stressed because of a pandemic? Yes. Would stress lead to more miscarriages? Yes. So is that the causal thing or is it the vaccine? Or is it people who took the vaccine and their friends are telling them you're crazy for taking the vaccine, which adds more stress, which leads to miscarriages? And other, what I'm trying to say here is that unless I go and actually dive into this data and figure out what is it that's actually being said? And what is the nature of the data? So, I mean, we part of the this, of science is being skeptical about everything. And in this particular case, there is so much politicization, polit politics involved in the way that people are interpreting what's going on that I, I'm not, I won't accept anything that people say on a pro or a con, right? I mean, I tend to, to pay more attention to things that end up in science and nature, uh, but something like this, I would look at where's the source that's telling me this? Why is he saying this? All of these other questions, because now we're talking about sociopolitics and not just science. Okay, I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up. I just have to add, I am apolitical. I'm also kind of politically ignorant, to be honest with you. I didn't even know who the hell Senator Ron Johnson is. I don't pay any attention to it. It just looks like theater to me. What I'm yeah. interested in is the science, and what I'm interested in is the parapolitical interface to science and how it's just being science is in such a threat now. And so, you know what the DOD did, the Department of Defense did? In order to help you, Dean, vet this stuff and ferret out what the truth is, they just took the mm -hmm. database down. They're no longer going to give anyone access to it. And they said, oh, yeah, that none of that data, is, it's, it's, it's all kind of flawed. So we're going to take it down and then we're going to fix it and then we'll put it back up. Well, I mean, come on, we've heard all well, that maybe stuff. Maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe it it's is. true. Maybe it yeah, is true. Who knows? That That's puts a, a very different. That yeah, puts a different. Right? So yeah. The point is, we don't know. Yeah. And so to, to yeah. Glitch in the no, system. I, I, Glitch in the system until yeah. somebody points out that it's wrong, and then we find it out. Okay. Well, uh, so, so again, to, so on cognogenics, the reason why I think it's very valuable is because, again, it's better to know than not to know. It is also the case that I just this morning saw a, a talk on this, that the ability to do genetic, very precise editing at this point is coming along very fast. And there are a lot of people who know a lot about this. I'm, I'm kind of a, 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 a newbie when it comes to this, this kind of topic. And it is amazing what can be done. And so if it can, if it, just like, I mean, people will take some kind of normal off the counter or over the counter pharma drug and die as a result, because people are different and any medication involves risk. There certainly will be risk for some people with, uh, with uh, RNA or DNA edits. Uh, it's for those people, it's very unfortunate that something happened, 
But for the vast majority of people, it actually will be very helpful. Well, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel for me is that I want you to be one of the guys with their hand on the switch, because this is going to go forward. This is going to be part of our future. And as you keep pointing out, whenever I say that, you say, quit talking about the future. It's here now. It's like when I talk to people, it's like, talk about the future of AI. I like, quit talking about the future of AI. You're interfacing with AI all the time right now, and it's just going to get more yeah. and more. So. The, the fact that, that you've established a track record of being careful about understanding the, the limits and opportunities of science and how to do science right and how to maintain the, the, the beauty of the scientific method certainly gives me hope. This, I got to believe, is occupying a lot of your time and attention right now. Cognigenics is a super... I mean, how far it can go is amazing, as you've alluded to. What else are you, what else are you working on? Is is this your main focus right now? Are you still doing the ions kind of stuff, and are you going to continue? To oh yeah, no, push I'm. I'm. Cognigenics uh, is uh, is not my day job. It's it's my night job. Uh, but the other thing I'm working on is uh, I've written a, a, a science fiction TV series. With, with a writing partner, uh, and we're shopping it around now. And the, the idea is that uh, just to the, re the same reason that we would write a popular book, that narrative, narratives are what convince people. We're, we're used to sitting and listening to stories. So I wrote a story which is designed to be an antidote to mo the way that psychic phenomena are usually portrayed in entertainment. It's usually portrayed or linked with a horror story. And that's not good for anybody. I mean, it, it works as a story, but I, you know, I don't see it that way at all. So the story that I wrote is actually has a very positive spin on it and challenges many of the tropes that are used in science fiction entertainment having to do with psychic phenomena. Give us a little taste of how that might play out story-wise in a very s snippet. Well... So uh, think about the invasion of the body snatchers and the Borg in Star Trek and virtually every other example where you have a hive mind, which is presented as the most horrific thing that you can possibly do. And we're saying in the story, no, it is not only not horrific, it is the best possible thing that we can do to, because it, it pulls together something which is already interconnected, but we, be, we sort of behave in an illusory way that we're separate and we're not really not connected. It is that disconnection that leads to the kind of madness that we're currently seeing in Ukraine, right? You have, you have people at, literally shooting at each other and not appreciating the fact that at a deeper level, everything it really is interconnected, including us. So this is part of the, of the plot line in the story where there's a tension then between people who, who in this case, take a genetic enhancement and become a, a, a group mind, essentially, everyone outside the group mind thinks that this is scary. We need to stop that. It's bad. From inside, this is the best thing that ever happened. This is like the difference between homo sapiens and homo superior. If, we, if we're going to survive, we need to advance as a species. And so the story is basically making the case that homo sapiens is dying. And we have to, we either die or we evolve. Well, the evolution is going towards a new kind of human. And if it needs a little genetic push to get there, so be it. 
You know, an interesting connection to that. I don't know if you know Whitley Strieber, but I'm sure you know of him. Probably one of him. the most, you know him. His contact experience, his ongoing contact experience includes an understanding of the hive mind, an understanding of the others who are visiting him have a hive mind orientation, worldview, reality. I guess you'd really have to say reality. And that in Whitley's words, and I'm not down with everything Whitley has to say, but it is somewhat of a barrier in terms of understanding us. Because once you're in that mindset, you're like, why would you think that's real? And it also has an interesting tie back, doesn't it, to the quote that you used earlier in that I don't think of others. You know, what do you, how do you get along with that? I don't think of there others. There are no others. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the meta, one of the metaphors we used in this story is uh, because initially the people involved were very resistant to it, uh, but they, it's that uh, it is as though you are a neuron in a brain. Well, you as the neuron can have certain capabilities and neurons are pretty clever, uh, but a single neuron would have no concept of what a hundred billion neurons with a, a trillion interconnections can do. It's like totally different. Well, the same is true here. If we really are interconnected in, in consciousness in some way, we feel like we're an individual, but as a collective, what we can do, not, I mean, what we can, the, take everything we know about being human, our cognition, perception, all the rest of it, and some little bits of psychic phenomena times 8 billion. That's, that's the direction that the story takes. And then it explores the, the notion of what would happen if that were true. Final question. What do you think of the fuss over the transhumanism agenda? What do they get right? What do they get wrong? I'm not deep enough into that to have a good opinion. I think there's and a lot also, of people. I, I need to go on to it. I have okay. another meeting coming up. Okay. Well, Dean, you've been super generous with your time and uh, super open. I always expect that. You guys just answer everything, knock them all out of the park. Terrific having you on. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks again to Dean Radin for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I tee up from this interview is, what do you make of the DNA fiddling that is coming down the road? And in particular, what Dean really brings into focus here in this interview is, what does that mean for consciousness? However you understand consciousness, however you understand your interface to consciousness, whether it's a blob of consciousness or a hierarchy of consciousness, what do you think? There's a lot to discuss here. And do stick around. I have some more pretty good interviews coming up. So stay with me for all of that. Until next time, take care and bye for now. 